The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Let me encourage you to open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. And before we do anything else, I would like to read to you Ephesians, beginning in chapter 2. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of Ephesians chapter 2. You follow along as I read to us from God's Word. This is what Holy Scripture says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you 
are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, O God, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, enlighten our minds to behold wonderful things from your law. And in the exposure of truth, we pray that our souls would be revamped and encouraged, and rebuked, and exhorted, and strengthened, humbled. We ask for the full-orbed ministry of your Spirit amongst all who have gathered here this night, so that each of us, Lord, myself included, would find that we have met with our God. We are not here to cram our heads full of knowledge. We are here to meet with our Almighty Creator. We have already sung of your grace and your goodness to us. We have sung of the the wonderful things that you have done in order to purchase us for yourself. And now as slaves of Christ, as those loving slaves of our great master, we pray, let the crumbs fall from your table and feed us from your word so that we know you and we understand you and we become more like Jesus, our Savior. For we pray in his name. Amen. Ephesians Chapter 2, when Brother Joe gave me a call and asked me to speak on Ephesians chapter 2, I had that feeling of both being overjoyed and overwhelmed, something like you might feel if you're like me and you know nothing about art, and someone takes you to the Louvre and says, describe to me the Mona Lisa in 20 words or less. (laughs) Actually, for me, that'd be pretty easy. Um, it's good. It looks like a face. I don't know what I would say. But if we had a little skill in those things and we tried to describe this masterpiece, we would say 20 words. How could we spend just 20 words describing the art that we are beholding in front of us? And there is a sense in which we look at Ephesians chapter 2 and we say this is so deep and so sublime and so wonderful. We will need hours and hours to explore the depths of this chapter, which makes me so glad it's an evening service we've got all night. But we will not take it. Ephesians chapter 2 is a wonderful passage, and I would like to try and preach the entire chapter to you under three headings tonight, and I'll give you those headings as we progress. I understand that Michael, Dr. Haken, uh, came and gave you an overview of the book, so I'm not going to spend any time doing that, and that uh, Joe gave you chapter 1, an excellent exegesis of chapter 1, so I simply want to dive right into chapter 2, this this diamond, this centerpiece, this Mona Lisa in the Word of God, and try to unpack three dominant themes that develop through this particular chapter. If you want a title for this sermon, it would be God is Great. (laughs) I don't know what else to say in reading Ephesians chapter 2 closely other than God is Great. 
And we will see His greatness under these three headings. First of all, sin has ruined us. In verses 1 to 3, Paul begins having made his prayer in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, he's praying that we would have eyes to understand what he's about to teach us. So he has prayed that we would understand what he's about to say in chapter 2. And he startles us by saying, sin has ruined you. Sin has absolutely spiritually ruined you. You are familiar, I'm sure, with a prison called Alcatraz just off the coast of San Francisco. I've been there. I've walked through it. It was eerie and it was creepy. And if you know anything about Alcatraz, you know the claim is made that no one escaped alive. That's a little bit disputed if you watch the Clint Eastwood movie. They never tell you what happened to those three guys. But they were never seen again, so apparently they were eaten by sharks. We don't know. But the claim is made by the Federal Bureau of Prisons that no one ever escaped alive from Alcatraz. All of us long to be free, don't we? Nobody wants to go to prison. Nobody wants to to be holed up in a prison cell with bars in front of you. There is something in us that longs to be free. And yet what Paul says here is that sin has ruined us and put us in a spiritual prison. We are in an Alcatraz, and it's the Alcatraz called death. And you were dead. That is a theological freight train where Paul is saying not the idea that you were physically dead, but like you would say about your car some February morning. Let's, should we think about that for a moment? Just cool ourselves down. February. Remember February? Remember tonight when you're in February so you won't complain. So some February morning, you go out to your car, you turn the key, nothing happens, the little lights don't flash on the dashboard, and you say, my car is dead. Was your car ever alive? Did it breathe? Did it drink? Did it eat? No, it wasn't alive. And when you say dead, what you mean is that your car is inoperative. It does not do the things it was made to do. It is incapable of doing what it was built to do. And Paul says every human being, as we'll see, it's comprehensive, no exceptions. Every human being is under this pronouncement. Sin has ruined us so that we are incapable of doing what we were built to do. Now, what ruined us? Well, he tells us, right? Sin. You were dead. And don't worry, we'll get going faster as we go in case you're panicking right now. So, wow, we're only in the third word. Uh, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses, the times you crossed God's clear boundary. Go up north, posted, no hunting. You step over the fence to climb a tree and have a date in this tree that's bizarre and weird, and you are trespassing, you have broken the boundary. You might, uh, he uses the word sins here, which is the idea of missing a mark. You aim the arrow, you miss the mark. God has said, live to this standard, and we fall short. Our arrows constantly fall short. Sin has ruined us because of our trespasses and sin. This is called our walk, in which you once walk. Our whole habit of life was full of sins and trespasses. Why all these sins and trespasses? Verse 2. We were following the course of this world, following the course, or rather the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When you were born, you came out of the womb aimed in the wrong direction. You were following the course of this world. 
And once you could walk, you were marching in the wrong parade following the prince of the power of the air. Every single human, every single person, every single individual in his values and in his ways has adopted the spirit that is now at work in the world. The whole ethos and value system of the world and worldliness as it is used as speaking about creation in its active rebellion against God the whole stream of worldliness is how we lived it's how we thought it's how we analyzed it's how we valued things it's how we walked it was the whole aspect every aspect of our lives even the most outwardly moral of us were gratifying sinful desires, pleasing our sinful nature, and choosing against God and against holiness. By our very nature, Paul says here, by our very nature, who we really were, we were children of wrath. Born as Adam's children, born under Adam's curse. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. When Adam stood as our representative in that literal garden of Eden and was told by God to enjoy it all, he was, he was invited by God to enjoy all that God had made and better to enjoy God himself and fellowship with God. There was only one restriction. You know what it was. Do not take of the tree and do not eat. However, Adam did. And when Adam did, he plunged all of his prosperity into following in the wrong direction, marching in the wrong parade. That is who we are. That is who we were. And if you think about it, very simply, and I'm a simple guy, that explains everything. It explains why a mother can kill her baby girl. It explains why publishers break privacy laws. It explains why our environment goes wacky. It explains why you get angry. It explains why you lie. It explains why you disobey your parents. It explains why you laugh at crude jokes at the office. There are no exceptions, Paul says. In verse 3, he writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were under God's holy wrath, his revulsion toward sin, his anger, and his just judgment. Which means, if you have come tonight... And you're not a Christian yet. Perhaps you're wondering about Christianity. Maybe you've come along with a friend who said, I'd like you to hear about Christianity. I know very few of you, so I don't know who's here and who's not. But if you're here and you're wanting to know the Christian message, it always begins with this diagnosis of you, the same diagnosis it had of me. We were, Christians were, and you are if you're not a Christian yet, in a spiritual Alcatraz. And you can attempt escape by being good or by being awful. 
You can attempt escape by being completely awful. You can party hardy and and abuse yourself and abuse others and and become completely self-absorbed and try and escape this prison, this Alcatraz, through this means. Or you can try and escape this Alcatraz by being good and donating to charities and offsetting your carbon footprint or whatever it might be. You You can try to be good or you can be completely evil. Both are attempts to appease this God or to ignore the demands of this God, really to to look at the physician and say, you know what, I know you said it's cancer, but I disagree and I'm just going to either fix it myself or I'm going to ignore it completely. Neither of those gets you off the island. You, my friend, are stuck on Alcatraz. Sin has ruined you. Sin has ruined all of us. Point number one. Point number two. God has saved us. God has saved us. Sometimes the littlest words are the most powerful words. No. Stop. Guilty. Fire! Little word. Very powerful. Paul takes two little words and he joins them together. And in this really awful diagnosis of our condition and this declaration of our imprisonment and our inability and and the fact that we are completely incapable of doing anything to get ourselves right with God, he then inserts the two little words that just burst onto the scene, but God. But God. The Heidelberg Catechism in question number eight says, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Are we really that bad? Do you know what the answer is? Yes. I'm a kid and I'm memorizing the catechism. I like that one. Yes. (laughs) But there's more. Unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Unless God's Holy Spirit makes us live again. So this is what he says. Sin has ruined us. God has saved us. God saves sinners. God saves prisoners. God saves children of wrath. God saves those who are dead. God does the saving. He intervenes. He interrupts. He grabs hold of a person and he does something to them. He is the operator. He is the initiator. He is the one who starts and finishes this work even when we were dead in our trespasses. So, The declaration of Paul is that this is what sin has done. A time you lied, even if that's the only sin you ever committed in your entire life, haha. but even if it was the only sin you ever committed in your entire life, that one sin is enough to plunge you into an eternal imprisonment, an eternal eternal, uh, incapability to make yourself right with God. Something that is clean, or rather something that is dirty, cannot make itself clean. Clean things know how to get dirty. Just look in the laundry. He says here, 
But God, being rich, verse 4 I'm at, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then, Paul can't help himself, by grace you have been saved. That's that just explosion of rejoicing in God's grace. You saw that in chapter 1. He speaks about the Father's work and to the praise of his glorious grace. And then the Son's work to the praise of his glorious grace. And the Spirit's work to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul's all about grace because he gets it. The pennies dropped for him. He understands what grace means. And so he just he just throws that one in for free right there at the end of verse 5. And then in 6 he says, And raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. You needed to be saved. Not from the brink of death, but from death itself. Not from being lost at sea, but from the bottom of the sea. You were a spiritual corpse. You were incapable. You were spiritually stillborn. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, you could do to make yourself right with God. And that is why we say this is an amazing chapter. Because God tells us that in my love and in my mercy and in my kindness, I chose to act. I chose to intervene. I chose to rescue. (coughs) He says in verse 5, that that remarkable word there, it's kind of translated with a bunch of words in our English Bible, he made us alive together with him. The older versions translated it quickened. He quickened us. The word is sometimes used that way today. It's, It's antiquated, but to be quickened means to be made alive. It means to be made alive. And there is something of a three-part harmony going on in these verses where God quickens us, He makes us alive, God raises us, God seats us with Christ in the heavenlies, and this is all done in Christ. Because of our positional identification with Jesus, it can be true of us that we have been made alive, we've been raised, and we have been seated with Christ. And so this saving work of God is all rooted in and all finds its meaning in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that is essential to us finds its root in the gospel. In our church, we try to remember the gospel in one hand. Christ died for our sins and was raised. You want to try? I know you're hot and you wouldn't mind moving, so give it a try. Here we go. Christ died for our sins and was raised. You just memorized part of 1 Corinthians 15. It was easy, huh? Let's do it one more time. Christ died for our sins and was raised. Which means the next time you shake a hand of a friend who's not believing in Christ yet, you can remember, I've got the gospel in my hand. And it's always easy to speak the gospel if we open our mouths. This gospel, that Christ died for our sins and was raised is essential to everything that is going on in Ephesians chapter 2. John told us, God so loved the world, He so loved the world, the world, all creation in its act of rebellion against God. God so loved the world, that's meant to startle us, that, as a result of His love, He gave. 
He gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever faiths in him, whoever trusts in him, should not die but should have eternal life. The Alcatraz rescue that takes place with God is a rescue by substitution. He doesn't invade the prison, break open the doors and say, run, follow me. He sends his son into your cell to take your place and to bear your punishment so that you can escape. It is rescue by substitution. Frank Morris and the Anglin brothers, the three who escaped maybe from Alcatraz, substituted paper mache heads on their bunks to fool the guards while they crawled out through the wall. Paper mache heads work for maybe one passing of the guard, maybe two passing of the guard. By the time they open up for daily walks around the yard, paper mache heads don't get up and walk around. They stay there, and you are discovered, and you are chased, and you are hauled back into the prison. But the good news for the Christian is that Christ invades this world and comes down and bears the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. All these things that he described in chapter 1, our following after Satan, our following after the course of the world, us adopting all the values and systems of ungodliness, all the sins, all the trespasses, without exception, are now put on him so that that he bears God's wrath. The son of his love becomes the son of his wrath. We were children of wrath. We become children of his love. It is a remarkable, remarkable substitution. Christ takes our place, really and truly, bearing God's full wrath in our stead. And we say, what motivates this? How can... I hope you've not grown tired of the gospel. Think about your sins today. Anybody here sin today? The rest of you are sinning now if you're not putting your hand up? <laughs> right? It's just sin. I mean, we, we're experts. What motivates a holy God whom we have violated time and time again when our whole lives are in one sense reproachful and, 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 and disgusting to this holy, this holy God? The fact that we go after his, the ways of his enemy and we love the things that he hates? And what motivates this God to then send his own son? He tells us here. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy, great in love, full of grace, overflowing in kindness, looks at those incapable of saving themselves and says, for by grace I will save you through faith, and this will not be your own doing, it's my gift. Do you like getting gifts? Sometimes. Do you like getting gifts from... Aunt Matilda, if you have an Aunt Matilda, I'm not talking about her. Do you like getting gifts from Aunt Matilda who gives you gifts like this? This is what I got you. What did you get me this year? Oh, okay. Okay. That's the best you can do. That's not a gift, is it? That's manipulation. That's payment, that's wages. That's not what he's talking about here. 
He's saying the word, the, the word grace means gift. It just means free. It means, it means unmerited. And what he says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not even faith, not even our trust, not even our dependence that we put in Christ is of our own doing. I mean, it is of our own doing. We do put faith in Christ. We do trust in Christ. But what he says here is that all of it is the gift of God. That when we look forward, we say, I must repent. I must believe. I must turn from the world and turn to Christ. I must look to that cross where Jesus was put to death. And I must venture all my life on what he did, saying that's what's going to get me to heaven, what Jesus did, not what I do. Living life forward, that's all me. But when I look back, I say, oh, In the words of Spurgeon, that was all of grace. It was all of grace. Because this sinful man, who is a prisoner and incapable of doing any spiritual good, would never believe on God apart from the quickening work of his Holy Spirit. This is why, then, God saves people. And it is why God can save anybody. Do you think there's somebody in the world God cannot save? then I rebuke you. (laughs) God can save anyone. They do not need to be of a certain ethnic heritage. They do not need to be of a certain religious background. They do not need to lead a particularly clean kind of life or moral life. What he said here is we were all dead and he can make dead people alive. Has he made you alive? Has he made you alive to himself? Have Have you... brought what Christ has done to bear on your soul? Have you done business with God so that you've, you've looked to God and say, I need a Savior. I need to turn from sin. I need someone to change me. God calls for this response because even though it cannot be bought, this salvation is something that must be sought. It's like that pearl of great price. And a man discovers it and he thinks, whoa, can't afford it. But I will sell everything I have to get that because it's of great value. Must have it. Is Christ of great value to you? Has there been this point in your life where Jesus Christ, the man, the Savior, our God, has become to your eyes like the single most important thing to you? Where the cross of Jesus has suddenly struck you like a thunderbolt as the most important event in the history of all humanity? When this happens, a person begins to seek after God and that happening, that seeking, is the very grace of God at work. And when God does this work and when God brings us from death to life in that moment of time and transfers us from the kingdom of the devil to the kingdom of his beloved son, he then makes you his masterpiece. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This glorious truth that you are now like a Ming vase, this beautiful, beautiful, wonderful work of art put on display to display the glory of God. He took something that was chipped and broken and holes and he he formed it and he made it beautiful. 
but it is most beautiful when it has flowers in it because then it's doing what it was made to do. And so as you do good works, not to earn salvation, but out of love for God himself, and you do the works which he's already prepared beforehand for you to walk in them, and your whole course of life changes from following after the world and following after the devil to following after Christ and doing the works that he's prepared for you to do beforehand, then you bring glory to God. Sin has ruined us. God has saved us. Praise the Lord. Almost all of the rest of this letter then answers this question. If sin ruined us, Paul, and God saved us, then how should we live? That takes us to point number three. Christ has unified us. Sin has ruined us. God has saved us. Christ has unified us. Now I would suggest that to our Western individualistic ears, this may seem like a strange place for Paul to begin. But what does sin do in every instance? In you, sin separates you from logic. Sin is insanity. When does sin make sense? It never makes sense. It says it's making sense. It promises life. It always delivers death. Sin is illogical. So sin separates you from wisdom. And it separates you from logic. It separates you from sanity. What does sin do between you and God? Well, sin separates you from God. Because of your sin, you are no longer welcome in His presence. What does sin do relationally with you and other human beings? It separates you. You sin against your wife, there is distance, there is separation. Sin's effect is always to bring separation. But now that sin's effect has been nullified, something should happen in our horizontal relationships with other Christians. You have heard, I am sure, of segregation. You are well aware of the treatment of African Americans in North America, especially in the United States of America. The Civil Rights Act of 1969, the massive attempt at public education. All of these things are aimed at what? They're aimed at integration as opposed to segregation. They are aimed at unification. And we can say there has been some outward success to these things, but you still cannot change what is whispered in people's living rooms. It may not be politically correct to believe in segregation today, but I've lived in America, and I've lived in Canada, and I've lived in my own head. And I know the kind of evil thoughts that can creep into our minds. Now, to a Jew like Paul... Any non-Jew before Christ came on the scene was like an African-American slave would be to the white plantation owner. Just trying to relate it to something that maybe you could mentally relate to. And and this, this, this relationship of sort of disdain, I look upon you, some white plantation owners were kinder than others, but for the most part, they you were regarded as a second class citizen, or worse, as chattel and property to be used and abused as see fit. And to the Jew in this day and age, that Paul is writing, much is much is the same. You're either a Jew or you ain't. And some of that is rooted in truth. Because God had said that Israel was his chosen nation. 
So it is rooted in truth, sort of. Because God had chosen this nation to save them, to show and to display his grace and his glory, and for them, in turn, to become beacons of his salvation to all humanity. They were to become proclaimers of the goodness of God. They're to welcome the unbeliever. They're to welcome the Gentile. There are stipulations that they are to follow, which they very rarely did. So Paul says this in verse 11 of chapter 2. Sin has ruined us. God has saved us. Christ has unified us. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was me. And that was you if you're not Jewish. We were separated from God. But Jesus came. And in fulfillment of the promises which God had made to those same Jewish people, He started to save not only Jews, but Gentiles. Jews and people who weren't Jews. And so, in verse 13, He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you were far off. You were alienated. You were, you were separated. You who once were far off have been brought near. How? By the gospel. By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. It is the gospel. It is the blood of Christ that takes people that had no stake in God's plan with Israel and puts them now on complete equal footing with every true Jew. Every saved Jew. Now, that all sounds kind of fine. We go, yeah, that's good. Just take yourself back into Paul's day, where centuries of practice have conditioned the mind to believe that anybody who's not a Jew is not an equal citizen in this kingdom. So, all right, they're getting saved, that's good, but let's reserve the leadership in the church to Jews. Let's reserve the important seats around the table for Jews. These were the kinds of things that were taking place. And Paul begins at this point because it is vital for Christians in his day and it is vital for Christians living in Toronto, the single most culturally diverse city in the world today, to understand what? Once detached, once alienated, once estranged, once separated, once far off peoples are now one with us in Christ. Equal footing. You would be abhorred to walk into a church in Toronto and see a sign over one water fountain that said, Colored. We need to think carefully if we are erecting invisible signs in our church structures and in our church relationships that say something similar. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. This is quoting Isaiah 57, 19. Came and preached peace to those who were far off, peace to those who were near. Paul's saying, look, Jews, you had this. This was going to happen. Preach to those who were near. Preach to those who were far off, the Gentiles. And then verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It was a huge issue in Paul's day in the churches that resulted in a big council and provoked false teaching, this idea that Jew and Gentile were on equal footing. It was kind of unbelievable to people. The kind of unbelievable that you experience, like expecting to reconcile with an estranged brother. I haven't talked to him in 25 years. Really? If he's a Christian and you're a Christian, you're in sin. Or if you're a Christian and he just became a Christian, you've got something to do. The kind of unbelievable that he is talking about here is to have these harmonious relationships with your cantankerous neighbor once he's saved. The guy that's been bugging you for years, and now God saves him. He expects that there will be unity between the two of you. The law exposed all of us as sinners, but Christ came and fulfilled the law and thereby brought about peace between us and God, peace between us and God, and peace between us and every other Christian. Every barrier to unity is obliterated by the cross. Every barrier to unity of God's people is obliterated by the cross. It is one reason the Westminster Summer Fellowship is a wonderful thing. Or the Toronto Gospel Alliance. Or other groups of Christians who can't quite agree on everything, but can surely agree on some things, in fact, most things, and definitely the most important thing, the cross, the gospel that Christ died for our sins and was raised. We must go as far as we can to destroy disunity. If the gospel is not taking root in your life and in your church to break down disunity, then it needs to go further. How do you break this disunity down? Number one, (laughs) you ensure that your relationship to Christ is based on the gospel, not secondary matters and not externals. What justifies you? Are you a better Christian on the days you have your quiet time than the days you don't? No. What justifies you is the cross of Jesus Christ. The more biblically defined we are, the more unity we will know. The more we grasp the gospel, the easier it will become for us to be one. So we need to ensure that our relationship to Christ is based on the gospel. Secondly, we need to learn to explain our differences. To be honest about them. To try to understand the other party. To listen. This is just Proverbs in action. We need to test their views against the Bible and be willing to say, you know what? I love you, but 
You're nuts. I don't see, maybe not you're nuts, but I don't see that at all. This is how I understand it. And this is how, how I see the text fitting together. And to work that out, you might find out that you have more in common than you would guess. If secondary issues, things like your schooling choices, or your cultural engagement techniques, or your personal loyalties, or your parenting style, or your values, your non-biblical values, or your preferences of taste and conviction, if those are the things that you say have to decide what makes unity in the church, then you have replaced those things, that you've put those things in the place of the gospel. We must never create disunity. Thirdly, if we ensure our relationship to Christ is based on the gospel, we explain our differences to one another in love, and then we enjoy Christ's peace. By the cross, he purchased peace. We are not a pile of bricks. We are the temple of God. I had a terrible job one summer. It was as hot as this, and my dad wanted me to go down the junction. We have a flower store down there. My dad did, and... And uh, it was falling apart. The bricks were falling out. So I had to take a little screwdriver and a hammer and knock out all the mortar. Apparently, this is called pointing. Am I right? Pointing. Great. I've never done it since. Never want to do it again. And in the hot days, you just knock out all the mortar, knock out all the mortar, and the bricks fall right out. And the only way to keep the bricks there and make that wall incredibly strong is to fill in the gaps with mortar. And it is as if Paul is saying, look, you are the temple of God, but you're not a pile of bricks in the corner Christ is our peace. And he is the mortar that fits between the bricks and he holds us together as one. Focus on what Christ has done for you. I would, in fact, can I go so far as just challenging you that if your, if your church defines itself by its ethnicity, I think you really need to wrestle your way through Ephesians chapter 2. Because I think Ephesians chapter 2 blasts out of the water the idea, unless, unless you are new to this country and you can't understand the language in which the Word of God is preached, and you're going to have, you know, the uh, Czech, I know we don't have Czechoslovakia anymore. We're going to have the Romanian church of whatever because the people there can only understand the Romanian language and all for that. But if you're defining, if you can speak English and you can be a part of this culture and you're defining yourself by your ethnicity because you, you love your ethnicity, if you're defining yourself by the color of your skin, if that's what defines your church, then I think you have completely failed to understand Ephesians chapter 2. We have a glorious opportunity in Toronto where the culture itself is embracing multiculturalism. The church ought to be leading the way. May God make it so. Now Paul concludes with these words. Chapter 2, the very last few verses. Verse 19. You were dead. God made you alive. Now He's calling you to be one. So then, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
Paul is not talking so much here about local churches as he is talking about the church universal, those who have gone before us to glory, those who walk on this earth now, all of God's elect, who are being fitted together to make that one glorious, perfect, metaphorical temple of God where God himself dwells, where Christ is the mortar of those bricks, where the Father is worshipped, where the triune God is experienced and enjoyed forever. He says we were once sinners, now we're saved, now we're growing in unity, we get a new passport, a new birth certificate, and you just became a new brick. (laughs) You get a new passport, you are fellow citizens with one another. You get a new birth certificate, you are a member of God's household, you have been adopted in. This is sons and brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. And you are a new brick being built into the temple of God. And all of this is the fulfillment of the great promises he made starting with Adam. One will come. His heel will be bruised. Isaiah. Our sin, the chastisement for our peace will fall upon him. And Jesus, setting his face toward Jerusalem, everyone afraid and in wonder behind him, turning to say to them, the Son of God goes, and he will be spat upon and beaten and betrayed, and then he will be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. And then he appears to his disciples, and to Thomas in particular, saying, Thomas, you need to stick your hand in here. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And one day, this same Christ shall return. The skies will part, and God will be seen. And Christ will come, and he will judge all humanity, every single person who has ever lived. And the only way to be right in that day is to say, hey, here's the birth certificate. Here's the passport. I'm a brick. I'm a brick. Because of what Christ has done for me. What a great God. Let us pray. And so, Father, considering all that you have done for us in broad sweep here tonight, we acknowledge there is so many more depths to be plumbed, but we're thankful for this glimpse of your grace to us, thankful for your mercy, so thankful that when we had no thoughts toward you, you had set your love upon us before the foundation of the world, you who works all all things after the counsel of your will the praise of your glorious grace. May the day of your return come quickly. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.